Talk. Talk show. Talk back. Talk radio. Talk your talk. Walk your talk. KGNU Talk. Call in. Call in and talk. Call in and connect. Connections. Friday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU. Good morning and welcome to Connections. I'm Joel Edelstein. Our topic, as I was saying in a moment ago, is water in the West. What's happening to it? Where is it going and why? We'll also look at climate change, its role in uh, the, the loss of water in the West and how that can be addressed. I'm delighted that Jamie Sudler, the co-founder and executive producer with Franny Halperin of H2O Radio, will be with us for the hour. You've heard Jamie on KGNU. Their show, This Week in Water, airs on our station and many others as well. Jamie is an attorney in Denver and a very unusual attorney. He took off three years from practicing law to take graduate seminars in political science at CU Denver. That's where I first encountered him. And then he went on to study world systems analysis with its founder and intellectual leader, Dr. Emanuel Wallerstein. Uh, that was at a um, school that used to be SUNY Binghamton. It's now Binghamton University. Jamie received an M.A. in historical sociology there back in 1992, and he brings this broad vision of water and environmental issues from both historical and geographic perspectives. He has served on the board of trustees of the Colorado Historical Society as well as the Center of the American West in Boulder. Jamie, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, Thank you very much, Joel. Thanks for the nice introduction. Well, I would like to begin, if I can figure out the technology, uh, to bring up a clip from a recent uh, episode of Water in the West. Just add water. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. Imagine the Grand Canyon with barely any water flowing through it. A new report says that as the southwest becomes more arid, levels at Lake Powell on the Colorado River could be too low for water to pass through outlets in Glen Canyon Dam, something that could happen if there are two more dry winters. The current level of Lake Powell is just a quarter of its capacity and only about 45 feet above the upper outlets through which water flows to turn turbines that generate hydropower for three million people. There are smaller outlets at the bottom of the dam designed to supplement releases, but the report warns that those lower pipes have only been used when the dam first filled or for some emergencies and may not function in the long term. This plumbing problem could lead to Lake Powell becoming a dead pool, threatening water deliveries to farmers and cities including Phoenix, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Tijuana. 
It would also harm the ecosystem of the Grand Canyon. The Bureau of Reclamation is currently studying options for the turbines. However, the researchers warn that the agency must act soon to put in new outlets at the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam or expand the ones already there. What's happening, Jamie? Well, it's such an important but complex issue which climate change has really brought on. Um, the, the situation in the West, as most listeners of the KGNU know, is, is dire. In fact, it is not overstating it to say it's a crisis. And the reason I say that is not my own opinion, but that's the opinion of the head of the Colorado Water Conservation Board, Becky Mitchell, who spoke last night on a webinar. And she was asked, is crisis too too big a word, too, too, uh, too, too, uh, too much of a, uh, of a word to use in this situation. He said, absolutely not. It's not. The, the, the American West is in its worst drought in 1,200 years. And we know that because of tree ring circles and that, that scientists have analyzed. And when I say it's in, we're in a, the worst drought, we're, we're, we're in a drought, but it's much worse now because of aridification or drying out or climate change. So it's not like a drought in the past that we're in or a series of droughts. We're in a series of droughts in the context of a changed climate with much drier conditions. Um, the American West, uh, the 230 million acres of cropland in the whole U.S. are in drier, dry conditions. Wildfires are, are, are rampant, as many, most people know. Luckily, this year, we've been very lucky in Colorado, right? Um, so, um, th- but in, in, in another study that shocked me that I read recently was that wildfires have a tendency to affect those of Native American, black, or Hispanic populations 50% more than other populations, particularly white. And the signs of this problem in the West, we can look at very specifically and locally. We can get down to, from the 40,000 foot level down to, 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 let's go to Aurora, for example. Aurora this week passed an ordinance on first reading, I think, that says, you know, they're going to cut back turf in the city for new development. Um, Expanding out a little bit, in eastern Colorado, uh, the reservoirs have been lowered to the point where the fish and wildlife is saying, come get fish out of these reservoirs or else they're just going to die. Uh, it's further to the west in the San Luis Valley. The, the state engineer has said he will curtail well pumping and farmers will have to shut down their op- – farmers are shutting down their operations in some areas of the San Luis Valley. Snow is vanishing. The water cycle is changing. We have drier soil that sops up runoff, and it's melting earlier. But I have to say that it's, there, there are differences, obviously, in this huge geographic area, particularly in, even in Colorado. There are differences. For instance, the Colorado River Basin in Colorado is not facing as much of a crisis as the rest of the basin. And the reason I say that is the state engineer last month, in the middle of last month, addressed a meeting in Glenwood Springs and said that there really is no reason to conserve in that district. Other districts, of course, are hurting. Like I said, the San Luis Valley, 
uh, eastern plains. The Arkansas River, further to the southeast, is much hotter, much drier, and state engineer has cut back wells that are alluvial, or that is connected water-wise, uh, water in waterways, to the Arkansas River. So uh, it, it, we're, we're in the midst of a huge crisis, and I don't say that lightly. Now, this goes back, um, I mean, there are so many elements that are contributing to it. If we didn't have the historic drought, then the situation certainly would not be the crisis that it is now. But that doesn't mean that we've been on a sustainable path for water in the West um, over these decades, is it? That's actually, that's, that's very true. Um, if we didn't have climate change, um, there's a study that says we would be 40% better in terms of drought than we are now. That's significant. Um, but so we would still have uh, uh, problems with water supply. And one of the things that we'll probably talk about in a, in a moment or so is the fact that the, the, the Colorado River Basin, uh, the, the, the lower basin has been taking much more water. In other words, in terms of another, in a way to another, another way to express it is they have overdeveloped water in the lower basin, that is Arizona, California, and Nevada, mainly California and Arizona. They have overdeveloped water to the point where they're taking much more than, this, than, than nature provides, than, than, than the river provides. And, and so this crisis would probably be coming even without climate change, but, you know, that's really hypothetical at this point. Yeah, well, I, it is because it's happening. <laughs> but, yeah, it's happening. And, I mean, what comes to mind, and, and there's certainly more to it, but um, I, it so happens because I have uh, two wonderful grandchildren who live in Scottsdale. Um, we are going back and forth to Scottsdale on a regular basis. And um, they don't have a lawn. They, they uh, live in essentially desert, and they're not trying to do anything to make it other than desert. But that area is so full of golf courses and green lawns that it seems to me um, just crazy to have water mm. being used that way. That's a really interesting question. And it's interesting because... Recently, Eric Kuhn, who used to be head of the Colorado, water Colorado River Water Conservation District, was, was talking about the subject of urban conservation versus agricultural efficiency or conservation. And he said, and this is true as far as I know, uh, that if you, took, if you took the cities of Denver, Los Angeles, Phoenix, Las Vegas, and even Salt Lake City out of the water picture, we still wouldn't have enough water. It, we wouldn't be supplying enough water to make up the cutbacks that the Bureau of Reclamation is asking for the states to come up with next week. So urban conservation is extremely important, but it's really a, a drop in the bucket when we're talking about uh, the Colorado River Basin. Yeah, and I guess the bucket has 70% of agricultural use uh, of water. So that, that really is uh, where the, the game is at. 
Yeah, it is. And in fact, in Colorado, recently, the Colorado Water Conservation Board said it's actually more like 91% of the water in the state is uh, agricultural. 7% is uh, urban and 2% is industrial. Urban meaning, you know, you and me drinking water and using our showers and toilets. So um, I know that there's a, I was just looking at a a very good article from um, ProPublica. And they were pointing out that um, the the four four crops that are predominant in California and Arizona are I think there's cotton and um, let's see if I can can find my um, perhaps alfalfa yeah um, I'm sorry for the, for the delay in getting those together. You know, they are um, rice, cotton, alfalfa, and almonds, and they're four of the most water-intensive crops in the world, and that's where a lot of that water in California goes to. Uh, Absolutely. And, and they don't have to be making those choices. Um, and uh, if, if I don't know if it, it's the change in law, that would incentivize uh, shifting to more um, less water-intensive crops or if there's some other way that that needs to be accomplished. But that certainly should be part of the picture. Well, indeed. And in fact, uh, there's alfalfa is being exported out of this country with Colorado uh, River water in it. And that raises a lot of eyebrows. In fact, Saudi Arabia people have bought up land in Arizona to do just that, to, 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 to uh, grow alfalfa to use for feed for animals. And uh, alfalfa is a heavily intensive water crop, as you said. And it, it just uh, it, it, uh, bothers many people that we're exporting Colorado River Basin water essentially to other countries. Jamie, what's the politics of this in terms of how do various interests and political forces line up on addressing uh, the water crisis? That's a very uh, difficult question. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the, the interests of the water owners, people who own water in the western U.S., or in particular, let's say, Colorado, they're so diverse. I mean, they, they, but, but they all, most, the 80% to 90, now, now that they say 90% is agricultural. So they line up that way. Um, that may not be necessarily true in a state like Nebraska, um, where you have big agricultural owning lots of acreage. I don't think that's the case in Colorado, mm, as far as I know. But so uh, the, the interests in, in further west, say, the Rocky Mountain region, are really diverse in terms of it's, it's not one uh, person. It's not like the oil and gas industry uh, where you have, you know, big players and maybe some small ones also that are, that are, that are driven by the big players. It's much more diverse than that. And uh, so they get together in organizations like the Colorado Water 
conservation, the, the Colorado River Water Conservation District, to advocate for themselves, which, which makes sense. And I don't, you know, uh, the interests uh, are, are really sort of aligning politically, not so much along economic lines, uh, for instance, uh, of, a, of, of owners of capital versus those who don't. It's lining up more in terms of p political power of the upper basin states, like on the Colorado River, meaning Colorado, New Mexico, and uh, Wyoming and Utah, versus the lower basin states, mm -hmm. meaning uh, Los Angeles or uh, California, Arizona, and uh, Las Vegas or, 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 or Nevada. Nevada, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, that's a very good but complex, very complex question. And that's Jamie Sudler. He's the co-founder and executive producer with Franny Halperin of H2O Radio. And you hear there this week in water on KGNU and other stations. If you'd like to join our conversation, our studio line is 303-442-4242. And Nancy is, is here and ready to take your call at 303-442-4242. So what happens if we don't come up with a serious, a serious response to the decline of water? What are the consequences of that? The, the major problem is uncertainty. We we, I think we're in a situation uh, of uncertainty, the likes of which we really haven't seen. In fact, and up until Ray, you know, 2010, perhaps maybe even earlier, things were certain. The lower basin states—California, Arizona, and uh, Nevada—they they relied on what the river was going to deliver every year, and they took a lot more water out than than they're entitled to relative to the upper basin states. So, what's going to happen? Well, next week is a deadline. The Bureau of Reclamation, the director of the Bureau of Reclamation, has said that the, the, all the states, the seven states on the Colorado River Basin, have to come up with a plan to cut two to four and a half or four million acre feet of water out of their draws in order for Lake Powell and Lake Mead to be sustained. And so everybody's waiting with bated breath to see mainly what the lower basin is going to do. We know somewhat what the upper basin is going to do, and that's essentially nothing. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to overstate that, but they have offered some, some um, conservancy measures and monitoring. But uh, as one uh, frequent critic has said, uh, Gary Walkner of Save the Colorado River, he said, their words are mere gibberish. And another person said what the upper basin offered was uh, uh, a nothing burger with a side dish of uh, air, and hot air. And huh. so, uh, wh so what's going to happen next week is we might see what uh, the seven states can agree to, but I, I don't really think that's going to happen. So the Bureau of Reclamation may have to step in and try to exert authority over the Colorado River Basin as to who takes what and when. And the reason for that is because Lake Powell is just about, is, is on the verge of going dry, on the verge meaning a year or two, and uh, that would mean the Grand Canyon might have no water in it. So the, the uncertainty of this situation is, is extreme. 
I don't, you know, nobody knows extent, exactly how to plan. Nobody knows the authority of the Bureau of Reclamation to come in and cut people off. Uh, can they come cut a, a person, a farmer off in the, uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on the Gunnison River or, or who takes water out of Blue Mesa Reservoir? Can they do that? We don't know. And uh, so uncertainty is like at, at the extreme level. And, uh, it, and, and everybody's worried, well, it's possible there could be legal suits, legal suits that last, you know, decades while we continue to undergo climate change. So uh, how is it going to wash out, uh, to use a metaphor, uh, we, we, no one knows. How far are we? I know it's, it's impossible to say with any precision, but r roughly how far are we from losing a, a generation of electricity uh, at dams along the Colorado? So Lake Powell, which is the first dam on, the first major dam on the Colorado River, there's, there's two, Lake Powell is the second largest dam in the country. Further down the river is Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the country. The Lake Powell generates power for about three million people. And uh, it's, it's, it's possible that the water level in Lake Powell will fall to the point where it cannot generate power because the water won't flow through the turbines first with enough energy, the water has energy to turn the turbines, and then won't flow at all through the turbines to, to uh, generate electricity. We're 45 feet away from that level, and that's, a, that's, that's, that's essentially nothing. That's, that's basically nothing. Lake Powell, I think, is at its lowest point ever, ever since it got filled uh, in 1968. Lake Mead, same situation. Lake Mead generates a lot of power for the west, and uh, further down the river, and uh, it, it, its power generation capacity, it's, it's the level of the lake in Lake Mead is around 22, 24% of capacity, lowest it's ever been since it was constructed in 1930, or it was filled in 1938, and it just, it, we're, we're on the verge of losing the ability to generate power in both those dams. I would think that <clears throat> if that actually, <coughs> Excuse me. If that actually happens, people will notice. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think people would notice. I know uh, it depends, you know, it depends on, you know, will we, w when that does occur, if it occurs, will we have enough renewable energy from wind and solar to make up the difference? Um, I don't I don't know of any I don't know of any predictions on that in that regard. I mean, people could be sitting in their. Uh, homes without air conditioning because there isn't the electric power to sustain the use of yes. air conditioning. And that doesn't yeah. mean it's because it's gotten any cooler, uh, quite to the contrary. Yeah, it's gotten much hotter. And in fact, California, you know, uh, they generate power from other dams that aren't on the Colorado River Basin, like uh, Shasta, I believe. Um, and uh, there, there was a report recently said that it, the state of California may cut back its hydro-generated power, electricity, this year by 50%. And that's not just because of Lake Mead. Uh, uh, that's also because of the other power generation facilities in California. The West, uh, the, the, the problem in the West of water, of dryness, is everywhere except for a portion of Washington State, the north, 
western corner of Washington State. But other, if you look at the drought monitor map that comes out every week on Thursday, it's just, it's just horrendous. It's horrifying. And, you know, not, we, we shouldn't leave Texas out of this picture. Texas is just in one of the worst drought conditions they've ever seen. The whole state is colored with drought, and some of it is ex- extreme or severe drought. So it, this is a crisis that is occurring across the West. I mean, it really seems like a challenge for our, our political system. Uh, it is. For, for government. I mean, who else is going to actually address this if not our government? Uh, is our government oriented toward looking at the real problems that, that our society, our country faces, and coming up with responses that will be effective? That doesn't seem to me to be the most important thing going on in the political realm. Um, I agree with that completely. I think if we do take a look at the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, you'll see you know, uh, 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 some indication of recognition of the problem. I'm not so sure you see recognition of how to solve the problem, or, or not recognition. You don't see action. You don't see, you don't see political will to deal with the climate change problem, which is really the water problem in the West. And that's Jamie Sudler, the uh, founder and co-founder and co-executive producer of H2O Radio. We're coming up on 9 o'clock. This discussion is happening on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. If you'd like to join the discussion, please give us a call at the studio line, 303-442-4242. In the glass. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. Last week, there was flooding in the Midwest and Southeast, leaving two dead in St. Louis and at least 25 in Kentucky. The disasters were called one in 1,000 year rain events, but now because of global warming, scientists say they will become more common. A hotter climate means more moisture in the atmosphere, which can then be released in heavier downpours. The conditions began over the Gulf of Mexico, where water vapor was injected high into the atmosphere and blown north. Storms that formed linked together like train cars, each dumping over the same area, causing the flooding. Although fueled by climate change, the storms were different from a hurricane that stalls, as Harvey did five years ago in Texas, or a single thunderstorm that unloads. More rain is forecast for Kentucky this week. As the catastrophic floods were occurring, Senate Democrats took aim at the climate crisis with new legislation that could now succeed because of an unexpected compromise. The Inflation Reduction Act, spending $370 billion over the next 10 years, will need all 50 Democrats in the Senate, including Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who agreed to the legislation after secret negotiations. Analysts expect that if passed, the bill could cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent by 2030 compared to levels about 20 years ago. Experts have said, however, that they need to be slashed in half to avoid catastrophic climate change. The compromise provides large tax credits for wind and solar, battery storage, and geothermal energy. 
States and utilities would receive funding to transition to zero-carbon power generation, and the bill also supports wildfire prevention and sustainable farming practices. Depending on their income level, individuals may be able to get a tax credit to buy a new or used electric car, and a program would be available to encourage homeowners to install heat pumps and solar. However, to gain the support of Senator Manchin, the new bill would force the government to allow oil and gas drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, and he was also promised a vote to speed up permitting of projects such as a natural gas pipeline in his state. Some environmental groups expressed outrage over continuing the support of oil and gas operations, one saying it's a climate suicide pact that would fan the flames of climate disasters. But others applauded the bill as the single biggest investment in clean energy and decarbonization ever proposed by Congress. Uh, Jamie, I think that's a, a great report on the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which did pass the Senate, and uh, it may get through the House uh, as early as today. Uh, it's There's uh, pluses and minuses in that galore. We've got a couple of, um, of callers who called in before that I'd like to get to, and then uh, let's get to the Inflation Reduction Act. I'd like to uh, welcome David to KGNU. Good morning. You're on the air. Hi, Joel. Can you hear me? Okay. Sure can. Sorry, I'm driving. Okay. So I just want to, I saw you commenting. I want to relate it to the, to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. So this has got a long way to go because it's one thing for Congress to approve it, but what happens in reality, I think, um, having been on the consulting side, so I heard you, I just chimed in when you were discussing hydro projects. So, for example, I did hydro permitting for FERC for a number of years. Uh, there's a big lobby to maintain these dams, particularly in California, all these other um, communities that depend on it. And on top of that, you have consultants like myself who were, I was part of a large corporation that was involved, engineers, like you can use a company like AECOM, which is a giant A&E engineering firm. They have a lot of vested interests. They have thousands of employees that, that they employ. So there's a big lot. Those organizations, many of them, including AECOM, um, and this also relates to pipelines, these are all members of the American Petroleum Institute. They're, they're, they're members of all these different um, trade organizations, including hydro, various hydro organizations. So... I think on one level, I'm just going to make this a really quick comment. On one, uh, on one level, that's great that uh, this climate re there is some climate movement, but I think also when you have Mountain Valley Pipeline being approved, I think the court case uh, or the pending EIS with Dakota Access, that's, that's going to be done. That pipeline is going to go through. The tribes are, are going to lose in that case. Um, I don't think the Army Corps is probably just going to approve Dakota Access, even though it's running illegally, close to 1.1 million gallons of, of fuel a day uh, from the Bakken. So um, I hate to be a Donnie Downer about it, but I think this bill is really kind of a wash, and I just I can't really do the math in my head how this is all going to happen. So that's just my comment. I wish I had a solution, but I don't right now. It's really useful to uh, to get the benefit of, of your experience in uh, in these matters in active uh, decisions that are being made. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you have to realize the American Petroleum Institute is huge. And I, I, I sat on API committees. I've sat, 
sat on them. Um, recently, I sat on one for public involvement. This is all going to be a wash. I mean, uh, the caucus that I was a part of, this is gonna, all going to be a wash down the road because this industry is going forward. Um, they have a lot of power. Um, they have FERC, is a, is a FERC because natural gas is under interstate gas is under FERC. They're, these are captured agencies. The Army Corps is a captured agency. These are all agencies that um, that is captured by the agency. They, they captured by the companies they're supposed to be regulating. Exactly. That's what I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to use lingo, but that's that's often what we're, what we use. These agencies do what the industry wants them, to, even though they give the impression involved. This is also a very dangerous thing that Manchin actually spoke to is reducing the National Environmental Policy Act, the influence that the public will be able to have over these processes. So I just want to make that comment. It's an important discussion, and um, I don't think many people know much about that. The general public doesn't really understand how these projects are permitted, and as a result, we get these projects and people are left to go like, whoa, how did that happen? And, and really where the action has to happen is at Congress. There has to be legislation. But right now there's no will, not even among the Democrats, to do anything about it. So um, that's just my comment, and I'll, I'll just leave it at David, that. thanks for your call. Jamie, do you have a comment before we move on to John? Uh, I think uh, David has got a very good point. His point, though, is, 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 as I understand it, is geared to the oil and gas industry, which uh, the new bill says that uh, oil leasing and gas leasing will be opened up into the Gulf. My only thought about that is it is possible the oil and gas industry won't lease more uh, space in the Gulf to drill. It's possible. I'm not making any predictions, but uh, we'll see. We're at 303-442-4242. Good morning, John. You're on KGNU. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good. Um, it seems like we want to avoid panic, and we want to give people a sense of uh, what can be done as opposed to uh, errant fear. So if we think of perhaps identifying methane as, as an immediate problem, which, of course, hasn't been solved, but but uh, is being worked on, and we hear about things that are being worked on. Um, I think that's a pointer here as to an attitude that we can uh, you know, generate. So my question is, uh, what, what specific things... Uh, are being done and can be done. I mean, I know that water conservation in the urban areas uh, can be quite successful, and I think the public is somewhat aware of that, uh, how much action we'll see. But things like cotton and rice uh, seem so obvious as crops, that, that and, and alfalfa, as it turns out today, that, that these changes could be you know, maybe made over. So, so the question is, what, what sorts of things uh, are being done and, and could be done or can be done um, to get on with this problem. Solving it. I think Thanks. it's a good question, Joel. Um, if you, if if I may. Um, to uh, get on with this problem. Um, yes, Jamie. Uh, so. Uh, Actually, cities in the West, uh, primarily in the Southwest, uh, a lot of them have done have done major 
steps towards conservation. Las Vegas is essentially eliminating turf, which is good. Las Vegas actually doesn't take that much water from the from the Colorado River, despite people thinking it does. Um, other other places in the in the West have done uh, have done uh, good work at getting turf out, which is you know it's a useless crop. It's, it's essentially a crop which is useless. And uh, Denver, the city of Denver, uh, interestingly enough, hasn't done much to encourage xeriscaping or uh, those types of programs. They have told me that the reason they don't do that is because people are doing it anyway. But there may be another reason in the city of Denver that they're not encouraging xeriscaping. is because they want to keep the use of water there on grass in case they do have to ask people to cut back in the future. It's much easier to ask someone to cut back watering their lawn than it is to stop using their shower or their toilet. So you first start by saying you got to cut back on your lawn. Um, are, are they influenced by the use it or lose it uh, tradition of water law? Absolutely. Absolutely. De- Denver Water has some of the oldest water rights in the state of Colorado. Denver Water serves about a million and a half people in the metro area. Not, not Boulder. It doesn't serve Boulder. Boulder has its own issues, but uh, uh, Denver, and Boulder has been actually quite active in my view of uh, uh, encouraging turf removal or, or, or subsidies for using xeriscaping. Um, and, and other cities in, the, in, in Colorado have also. Uh, Aurora, Aurora is really moving in that direction, and some others too. Um, Fort Collins, for example. Uh, but the city of Denver is not, or the Denver water is not. Um, so uh, that's always puzzled me, and I think you've hit the nail on the head. It has to do with the prior appropriation system. They want to keep their water rights. and uh, But that doesn't mean that, you know, there are really good people at Denver water and uh, who, who know this issue and who are encouraging uh, people to xeriscape, but just not on a programmatic level. The state of Colorado is doing so. You may have seen there was uh, legislation to do that uh, passed last year on a statewide basis to encourage people to stop using grass or turf. And, um, but the color also brings up other issues about farmer, farming. Farmers are really trying to become more efficient. The, Paul Bruchet, who's near Kremlin, talks about the efficiencies of switching to some crops as opposed to others, like alfalfa, Gro- or growing drought resistant uh, alfalfa that doesn't take up a lot of water or, or a variation of grass that you can then feed the animals that we eat. Um, so farmers are, 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 not, are not ignorant of this problem. They know they have to do something. The question is, even if they all switch to more efficient methods, even if they all could switch to something like drip irrigation or crop rotation or lack of tilling, which is all good for soil health and also for drought. Um, I'm not sure it's going to make that big of a difference. Now, switching from alfalfa, that could make a big difference. But the legal will has to be there, the political will. You just can't tell a farmer, you can't grow what you want to grow in in the way we have it now. And this is really the... um in a sense, the kind of the the outcomes part of what's happening, uh, which is we've got this severe drought, and it is its effect on uh, w- how we live and what we do 
is becoming more and more apparent and becoming more and more significant as the drought goes on and the uh, the insufficiency of the amount of water that we have to meet our needs becomes greater and greater. And the other side, which is really causal, is climate change. And that, you know, the part of what's going on is we have less water supply because there's drought. The drought is related to climate change. uh, And the response to climate change by the United States over the last uh, 40 years has unfortunately been um, a non-response, essentially. And now we, um, we have in front of us the Inflation Reduction Act, which is uh, going to be the biggest thing the United States has done to address uh, climate change, the biggest thing ever. And it is so deeply flawed, <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. this bill. Um, I'm just looking at a response to it from um, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Sanders writes, let me be honest with you in saying that I have very ambivalent feelings about the reconciliation bill, that's the Inflation Reduction Act, that was passed in the Senate on Sunday and which I voted for. This bill was a chance to do big things. It did very modest things. It was a chance to stand up boldly for working families of our country and restore their faith in in government. It didn't. In my view, after weighing the pluses and the minuses of the bill, the pluses won and I voted for it. But let's be clear, this is only the beginning. We still have a long way to go to create the kind of economic, social, racial, and environmental justice the people of our country deserve. And that's not going to happen unless we fight for it. Um, And there's more that's more specific that maybe we could get to because his his comment on this is, is very substantive and I think very important. Um, but he voted for it. You know, yeah. what's your view of the accomplishments of this bill? Oh, that's a good question because I'd, uh, the accomplishments one can sort of list off. And uh, they, 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 the, the bill does provide money to buy water or lease water from farmers so they don't use it and it stays in the system. And uh, it also provides money. It, there's four billion dollars that has to do with water out of the 300, nearly 370 billion, uh, four billion deals specifically with water. Um, they, the, the money is there to negotiate with tribes to keep their water in the basin instead of them taking out. And just as a side note, you know, the, the tribes recently in the Colorado River Basin uh, wrote a letter to the Bureau of Rec saying, we are not being involved in these discussions between the lower and the upper basin about how to save water in the basin. That's just a side note, but it is an important side note. It's a very significant side note. Um, the bill also... Uh, uh, the bill has been analyzed that it would uh, cut You know, before we, I just want to stop you to say, my impression, and it's not based on a lot of knowledge, is that there were the days when the tribes had no money. I mean, they just, their economies were at the lowest subsistence level, and they they couldn't have a voice because they couldn't um, hire lawyers to speak for them. Well, then came casinos, and um, there are a significant number of tribes 
that have uh, important revenue sources, and they have wisely used those revenue sources uh, in part to develop a voice that is often heard in Congress. But I guess that voice is not loud enough uh, for water. Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, if it's going to be loud enough. Uh, I don't know if, you know, the Secretary of the Interior is uh, uh, from, from the Laguna Pueblo, I believe, in New Mexico. And right. And Holland. And uh, will she listen or will she have the Bureau of Reclamation under which she, uh, over which she uh, has authority? Will, will she listen to them, to the tribes? And, and they're, they're saying, you know, the tribes do have the most senior water rights of anybody. There's, that's been established. Um, and, and, but will that, will that legal right actually stand up when you mm. have people in Los Angeles uh, who, you know, are, aren't be able to turn on their taps? I, I, that's a dramatic example of the conflict, but uh, that's, I think that's what it really comes down to. In terms of affecting the, um, I mean, I, I saw a figure that um, the actual difference that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, will make in uh, carbon and in terms of meeting the, the goal of, we were supposed to get to 50% reduction, I think, by 2030. And um, with this act, we will get to 40%. By uh, 2030, right. And uh, that without the act, we would still be getting to 30-some percent. So it's not as though the, the act is making that much real difference in, in carbon. I mean, it's a step forward. It's something, and something is better than nothing, and nothing is what has been done for three decades. But still, it is not that much more than nothing. Absolutely, and that's where the view expressed by Bernie Sanders comes in, that there is so much more work to do, and it took so much work to get this bill, which doesn't do a whole lot, but it does something. The analysis of the 40%, we get to 40% uh, carbon and greenhouse, it's actually all greenhouse gas emissions, 40% through this bill by 2030, is based on an analysis by Princeton University, as best I can tell. And um, I hope it's right. I mean, as far as the 40% is concerned, I hope it's not lower. And this is the uh, percent of what the emissions were in 2005. Correct. Correct. Um, and of course, th the the actual reference point that uh, came out of uh, maybe the Kyoto Accords back in 1990 were for emissions at that time. So um, the bar was really uh, lowered uh, as measuring what what the U.S. is doing in terms of of really cutting back. Mm -hmm. um, if if I could, Joel, I think it's important for people to understand why. Is climate change doing this to the Western, um, to the to the West, to the atmosphere, to the water? Um, if if I could, yes. And uh, the interesting thing is that what's really going on is the atmosphere, the air above the ground is becoming more thirsty. It's actually taking more water 
out of the soils. It's, it's causing uh, the, the, the snows are melting faster. In fact, there's, there's significant research that snows will be melting in the winter and rain will be falling in the winter. In fact, there's one analysis that says we won't have snow uh, by 2060 in the west, in the Rocky Mountain West and, and California. And so what's going on is that climate change heats up the air. And as the air gets hotter, then it, is able, it holds more water vapor. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's an evaporation. There's more evaporation. Hmm. The atmosphere is becoming thirstier. And, and it's, it's, it's what they're calling evaporative demand. It's going up. And, it's, so, and then the other thing that's really interesting about this and horrifying is that as there's more water vapor in the air than in other places where, uh, where that rain or that water comes down, you get floods, just like in Kentucky or St. Louis in the last uh, three or four weeks. There's more water vapor in the air that's going to fall somewhere, and it may fall really heavily. You know, looking at um, other aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, just the, the question of the um, assuring that corporations and wealthy individuals pay a, a minimum tax of at least 15% of their profits. And what um, the analysts point out is that that will make a difference for some, but that there are so many other tax breaks uh, in this bill that in the end it's not going to do that much I mean, it will raise some revenue, and, and that revenue is important to fund um, some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. But um, if we're really looking for tax fairness, this is only a, a very small first step. Um, how do we get to a, um, a government which is seriously looking at fairness in our tax system? Um, that means political change, and that, that means that people who um, are not in the uh, upper 1% come out and participate. Um, and that question of how we do that, um, make that happen, uh, that's a great challenge, and it's a challenge before us uh, as Americans right now. Yeah, well, it's also a challenge not just in terms of tax policy or wealth uh, versus uh, the rest of us. Um, it's it's a question. It's also a question of the political will to to go forward and implement policies like Bernie Sanders was expressing that limit the production or the burning of fossil fuels um, uh, or the leaking of methane. Uh, or, or it, it really means there needs to be political will to move in that direction. Where does that political will begin? Well, I think uh, it begins with all of us. It begins with uh, um, everybody who has the ability to vote and, if so, contribute to campaigns or to work in them. Um, I, I don't know if there's political will in other sectors uh, that may be cut back uh, by attempts to rein in greenhouse gases. And so we are, um, what, three months away from the 2022 election, and um, we will all have an opportunity to 
participate in uh, choosing the Congress that will make the laws or not make the laws that we need. Um, I, w- I would mention I'm looking forward to uh, doing a show next week where uh, the subject is assessing the Biden administration's first two years and uh, whether the administration and Biden um, have performed in a way which merits um, their uh, continuation and that uh, their party gain more control over uh, the Congress, win more seats or not. Um, and uh, I think it's a very significant election that, that we will have coming up and significant for water. Uh, absolutely. I think people should be demanding of their political candidates, what is your position on water? And in fact, anecdotally, I heard a person recently say that in a lo- very local election here in the Denver area recently, they asked their candidate, what is your position on water? And the candidate had no position. And that, th- that, that is not acceptable. It, 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 and I mean, I hate to say I don't. I don't want people to have their hair on fire, like mine might be. Uh, but th- it's not acceptable for a candidate for any political office, any of them, uh, to say they don't have a position on water and and the the crisis in water in the West at the present time. Uh, let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're on KGNU. Uh, you're talking to me? I am. I, hello, guys. A nice conversation. Jamie, I really love your reporting. Very uh, uh, infor- informed and uh, well-presented, so thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to address a couple callers back who said that the regulatory agencies had been, uh, like, co-opted or, or, uh, or uh, bought out. Um, or captured, well, I think the word I, was. <laughs> one thing that I've learned is that from the get-go, those regulatory agencies were set up to protect the corporations from uh, uh, from democracy, from people's uh, things, so so they were originally uh, designed in the corporate uh, uh, interests for by the corporations. So so they're to uh, remove that. So um, and then um, you know I just think that you know the, you talk about political will. Well, when, when we have a, a constitution that you know I, and. Scholars will agree that protects solely property and commerce, you know, above the Bill of Rights, that, you know, this, this is the kind of society that we have. So, um, and, and people have risen up, Joel. You ask about how can we change the government. People have tried. They get shot down. They get, they, they get uh, there's ways to control the democracy and people. Um, and so we have to think out, outside the box is what I'm saying. Thanks, guys. Great. Thank Thanks you. very much for your call. Jamie, uh, a final comment. Well, despite my hair being on fire, I am optimistic. And I don't know why, except for the fact <laughs> that in past crises uh, with regard to water, people have come together to solve the problem. Will that happen now? Uh, it might in terms of water. But that doesn't mean it will in terms of climate change. And that, that, that does kind of make me a le- less optimistic um, and, and a little bit scared, to tell you the truth. I'm not so sure there's the political will to deal with climate change. 
Um, what is H2O Radio uh, working on right now for the next couple of episodes of uh, This Week in Water? Well, that's a really good question because we haven't settled on it yet. We'll settle on that actually later this morning. But one of the, one of the uh, uh, stories we saw had to do with methane. And it had to do with the fact that landfills are leaking much more methane than we thought. And, of course, methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, although it stays in the atmosphere a much shorter time. But there's an analysis from satellites that methane is leaking from landfills much more than we thought, uh, not only in, in Brazil, but also in Pakistan and India, which affects everybody, affects everybody on the planet. So that's what's one of the things we're working on right now. I can't remember the others. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I think it's been very informative. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it. And Jamie Sudler is the uh, co-founder and co-executive producer of uh, H2O Water and This Week in Water. That's it for Connections this morning. I'm Joel Edelstein. Thanks for listening.